the story of a boy who dreamed of becoming a man, but dreamed up a monster instead. It has hunted you since the summer of 1994, back when we confessed who we were through mixtapes, when every movie at the video store had dirty heads. You were 13 and thought you knew who you were, only the shadow with too many teeth knew you better. It still does, and it won't stop, not until you come home, back to where it all began. Part cosmic horror, part coming-of-age story, Dirty Heads is a terrifying read from the author of House of Size, The Fallen Boys, and A Place for Sinners. Out now. From the host of This Is Horror Podcast comes a dark thriller of obsession, paranoia, and voyeurism. After relocating to a small coastal town, Brian discovers a hole that gazes into his neighbor's bedroom. Every night she dances and he peeps. Same song, same time, same wild and mesmerizing dance. But soon Brian suspects he's not the only one watching and she's not the only one being watched. Their watching is the Wicker Man meets Body Double with a splash of Suspiria. They're Watching by Michael David Wilson and Bob Pastorella is available from thisishorror.co.uk, Amazon, and wherever good books are sold. Welcome to Dead Headspace. I am your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. Today, we are talking to the author and the founder and editor of Hard Case Crime, Charles Ardai. Say hi, Charles. Hello, Hello Charles. And uh, The old jokes are the best. <laughs> well, when we have Chuck on here, he's, he's done it both times now. I say, yeah. hey, Charles, uh, say hi, Chuck. I mean, he says hi, Chuck. So, yeah, you know, that's yeah, really I'm, what you I'm, said. I've got an 11-year-old daughter. you got to tell dad jokes when you're when you a dad. I'm almost there, but not really, because my son's only two and a half. <laughs> starting. Oh, uh, yeah, now. you can tell the jokes, but he won't He won't say, oh, dad. Not yet. He also won't tell. roll his eyes, which is nice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm the funniest man in the world right now for another year or two. <laughs> Yep, that's what you got. You got another year or two. Wait, wait till uh, wait till he's fourteen. So, yes, I, I want to ask what got you into crime, but before we sure. before you dive into your answer, just to what we're going to talk about his um, publishing company real soon. But for those that are not familiar, Hard Case Crime, it is uh, <laughs> it's it's got a little bit of everything. I mean, it's my personal take on the books I've read. Is there are aspects like all right, blood sugar? Uh, audio listeners can't see it, but I'm holding up Daniel Cross's blood sugar. There are aspects of horror. It's it's covering uh, you know Halloween, at pretty much the buildup of that. Um, Joyland. It's got aspects of uh, supernatural elements, uh, as does uh, a few other of uh, King's releases with you. And there's obviously a heavy hand on crime. 
Noir. Mm-hmm. And what you do with the covers is amazing. So Thanks. that's just my preamble to the question I'll ask eventually with Harkness Prime. <laughs> but uh, and I got to say, like, if you didn't catch this, I'm very excited to have you on because of how much I, I love what you've done, man. It's a I lot really different. Yeah, it's a lot different than what a lot of publishers are doing and um, not for nothing, but I do like to see a lot of focus on the older stuff that came before as well as the newer stuff. So with all that being said, let's go back to what got you into crime fiction. Right. Where, where did I start my, my misspent life of crime? Well, you know, getting into <laughs> crime fiction to start with, it's the same way everyone else did. As a kid, you read Hardy Boys, you read Sherlock Holmes. So that's how you get into crime in the, in, in the first place. But at some point, I discovered uh, these old paperback novels. And these were published between basically the end of World War II and maybe 1970 or so. They were generally cheap paperbacks, very skinny. They weren't 350 pages long. They didn't give you the childhood backstory of the characters. They just gave you some really tight, high-velocity storytelling, usually with a painted cover. And the painted cover usually had a beautiful woman on it, sometimes a guy with a gun. And it was just an irresistible package. And the cover price was 25 cents. Now, by the time I was born, books weren't 25 cents anymore, but I found these old paperbacks on a shelf that my father had, and uh, he had all the Brett Halliday, Michael Shane, uh, private eye novels with covers by people like Robert McGinnis and uh, Robert McGuire. Uh, And then if I went into my grandmother's uh, shelves, she had hidden in the back behind proper books in the front, she had Mickey Spillane. So I knew what she really liked to read, Mickey Spillane, Mike Hammer, Private Eye novels. And so I picked up these books and I fell in love with them. Now, fast forward 20 years, I had spent time, I, I'd written short stories for mystery magazines. That was something I was doing. I'd written for other kinds of magazines. And I took a break to do some stuff in the world of business. I started an internet company called Juno, which was fun. But at some certain point, Juno got uh, merged with one of its competitors, and I was uh, having drinks with a friend of mine named Max Phillips, who's a brilliant, brilliant graphic designer, uh, also an author, a novelist, but a brilliant graphic designer on top of that. And we were drinking and talking about stuff we wanted to do next. And one of us, I honestly don't remember which, said, you know, you remember those old paperbacks? And we started talking about them. So why, why doesn't anyone publish books like that anymore? Books that look like this, that feel like this, that read like this, nobody's publishing them. And because we had a few too many drinks at us, one of us said, and this was me, why don't we do it? Why don't we just start our own line of books? No, there are a million reasons you don't start your own line of books. It's a terrible <laughs> idea. What a horrible way to make a, a, a living. But we were, we were into it. And uh, I probably would have dropped the whole idea, but Max came back to me two weeks later and he said, you remember that idea we had? And I honestly said, no, I don't remember. What, are, what, what idea? <laughs> He said, well, that idea of starting our own line of books, I've dummied up some covers. Now, remember, I told you he's a brilliant graphic designer, and he showed me what these covers look like, and they're the covers that you love, covers I love. Everyone who has seen these covers has fallen in love with them because they look just like the covers from the 1940s and 50s. And when he showed me these covers, I couldn't say, eh, drop it. It's not important. They looked so good that I said, okay, I'm going to take these out. I'm going to find a publishing company that's willing to work with us. We're going to bring back the old forgotten books from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. We're going to bring those books back, the best of them, not the average, the best, the ones that still read great today. And I bet we can get some current writers who wish they had been born back then uh, to write new books in that style. That's hard case crime. That's where it came from. And I spent three years pitching it. 
found a lot of publishers who said, oh my God, I love what that looks like, but I'm not going to buy it. You know, that, that's, it's too niche. It's only for collectors. There's some truth to that. And, uh, and so they said, no, 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 we love it, but no. And then finally I hooked up with a company called Dorchester Publishing. They don't exist anymore. Yeah. They're out of business. You probably remember them for their horror. They did Westerns, they, but they didn't have crime fiction. And so I went to them and I said, hey, here's, here's an idea. You have horror, Western, romance, even a few techno thrillers a la Tom Clancy. You don't have crime fiction. I know crime fiction. I don't know how to print books. I don't know how to source paper and ink, warehouse. You do all that stuff. I'll, I'll buy the books. I'll commission the art. I'll make these books great. You print them and let's work together. And they said, yes. I couldn't believe they said yes to me. After, because, you know, I'd gotten like 50 no's. And so that's where Hard Case Crime began. And so we came up with the idea in 2001, published our first books in 2004. And here we are 18 years later. It's almost 20 years. And we published like 150, something like 150 books. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. That's amazing. Uh, Yeah, we actually had, there's so many points to cover there, but we actually had Don Daria on last season. Oh, Don's great. Yeah. So Don was the horror editor at Dorchester. Yeah, he's a real nice guy. And then Brian Brian Keene, uh, we had on too. And we've heard from listening to his podcast, we've heard all about Dorchester and that. And how it went under. Brian Brian was great about documenting it and, and holding their feet to the fire. You know, most of the people who worked at Dorchester were genuinely good people. Unfortunately, there, there seemed to have been a couple of bad apples somewhere in the bunch. I don't even know where. Um, and the company sadly went under. Uh, for no reason having to do with the paperback novels. It, I think they had magazines, they had other businesses and those didn't work out, but Dorchester was great. Now what happened after Dorchester went under, we had published our first 66 books with Dorchester in the small pocket-sized format that was popular mm-hmm. in the 40s and 50s. And suddenly we had no publisher. And so I went around to um, five or six other publishers. I think it was six publishers I approached and I said, hey, I don't want one penny more than what Dorchester was paying, which by the way, wasn't much. And I can hit you up for more money, not one penny. I just want you to step into their shoes. That's it. And five of the six made us an offer, which was great. You know, so what's the difference? The first time out of 20 or 30 approaches, only one yes. The second time out of five or six, five yeses. And the answer was, first of all, we'd proven it. We'd actually printed the books. And the other was Stephen King. So somewhere along the way, Stephen King uh, I, I reached out to him and didn't expect to hear back. And he decided he wanted to write for us because he loved what we were doing so much, which was incredibly generous of him. He's an incredibly kind, generous man. And mm. he liked what we were doing, wanted to support it. And he wrote a book for us called The Colorado Kid. And it became a New York Times bestseller the way all his books do. And when we finally, when Dorchester went under and we had to get a new publisher, they knew that one of the books we published was by Stephen King. And that was enough, I think, to make them want to be in bed with us, want to be in business with us. And so we got, we, so we ended up working with a company called Titan Books based in the UK, also a fantastic company, really great partners. We've worked mm-hmm. with them for more than a decade now. All of the books since 2011 have been published by Titan under the Hard Case Crime banner. Uh, they're larger size paperbacks. So the cover art is bigger. The text is bigger. You know, when you get older, you need bigger type. And uh, we've also done comic books with them. And Titan has been really a dream to work with. So I miss I miss the guys from Dorchester. They were great, uh, but I couldn't be happier uh, working with Titan. They really are great. Brennan, I want to tackle the Colorado Kid and his other two books with with Hard Case. Okay, that's right. Because uh, sure. me and Brennan are fans of all three of them. But uh I would like to, because I, I, 
I don't know if I, Brennan, maybe I did. I don't know if I actually asked you which of Kings three, uh, which would be a Colorado kid, Joyland, and later, um, which of the three are you a fan of? But before you answer, Charles, which one is your favorite if you have to pick? Uh, if I had to pick, it would be Joyland. Joyland is is a simply outstanding book. All three of them are terrific. Yeah. Uh, each one is great in its own way. Uh, Joyland and Colorado Kid are set in the past, later set in the present. Later has the strongest supernatural element to it. Joyland has a more modest supernatural element to it. So if you're into that element, Joyland even, uh, Joyland does have a, a psychic paranormal aspect to it, but uh, but later directly ties into the universe of it. So if you're a big King fan, that's going to turn you on. Um, later has recently been optioned to be turned into a TV show. We'll see if it gets made. Nice. Um, if it does, I'm sure there will be a lot of uh, fans of later um, coming from the TV show. Colorado Kid became the TV show Haven, which ran for six years on sci-fi. And I got to work on that, which was a real treat. My first and so far only time working closely on a TV show. I wrote some scripts for them and I consulted on all the uh, other people's scripts. So Colorado Kid and later both have a very special place in my heart. But if I had to pick one, uh, Joyland just has hits all the emotional notes just right. Uh, when you get to that final scene, if you're not in tears, I think you're, you probably <laughs> don't have a pulse. <laughs> That's almost what you said to me, Brennan, because he read it. <laughs> that is exactly ago. what I said to you. <laughs> yeah, really? That's great. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm completely on board with uh, with, with exactly what you said. I think that uh, you know, there, there's so many um, lifelong fans of Stephen King that kind of divide his work into like pre-2000, post-2000 with... Uh, kind of an upturned nose at the later stuff. And Joyland is just one of those gems from, yeah. you know, his, his newer, his newer works. That's, you know, not that people, that many people are missing it. You know, nobody completely misses a King book, but I don't think it gets the recognition that it deserves. It really is one of his better books, especially one of his better recent books. I, or, I, I totally agree. I think uh, he, when you see people making lists of their top 10 King books, of course they put in The Shining and they put in it and all the classics, uh, but I'm seeing Joyland crop up there. And I, I think with good reason, I think people really take it to heart. It feels a little bit like uh, Shawshank Redemption to me, a little bit like Green Mile in terms mm. of that sort of, really powerful emotional thread or other recent ones that I thought were really powerful. Um, I thought Billy Summers, his last book, uh, I I think that's still the most recent one that came out. Uh, Billy Summers about the hitman who's got one last job to do. That broke my heart also. You know, he's not a Vietnam vet. He's an Iraq war vet and the war scenes are really powerful. Uh, So if you haven't read Billy Summers, that's a great one. You should read it. Uh, 11-22-63. Yes. Powerfully. (laughs) That's my favorite. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and that's it's a great book. So Steve keeps turning out really good books one after another. I'm dying to see the next one. I think the next one is Fairy Tale. Uh, which is has a yeah. strong fantasy. I haven't read it yet, but it's coming, I think, in the fall. And then after that, he's got a Holly Gibney novel with the character from The Outsider uh, coming to star in her own book. I think he, she was originated in uh, Mr. Mercedes, and then she's turned up in a bunch of the other books, too. And so he's doing a book about her. And uh, I don't know what else he's got cooking, but I I, I have faith in him. The man keeps... Yeah. Uh, keeps uh, you know what was another one? Revival. Revival. Oh, the Revival's a, a great one, yeah. scary book. I mean, really, yeah, that ending sticks with you. <laughs> that ending is, I'm not going to spoil it, but that ending is great. And by the way, the character in Revival spends some time uh, traveling with the uh, Carney from Joyland. 
So it's just a little Easter oh. egg. So if you're a fan of Joyland, you'll find it mentioned in Revival. Yep. You know what? Now I'm I'm sorry, Pat. I want to cut in real quick. No, um, I I'm really glad you mentioned Billy Summers because I feel like that got a lot of hate oh, really? uh, when it oh. came out. A lot of yeah, no, I I don't know. Maybe it was like strictly within the uh, people. Uh, who only read King as, you know, approaching from the horror angle. That could have been it, you know, but uh, I saw a lot of people, you know, react negatively to it. And I I loved it. Um, I, the, the kind of reveal, if you will, at the end, um, I remember guessing at that, seeing it coming and the way it was executed, like the fact that I kind of knew what was going to happen it didn't take away from it at all. And yeah. to me, yeah. that's the sign of a good story. It's like, if I know where you're going and I, you know, am there for the ride anyway, if I'm enjoying myself just as much as I would on a mystery tour, I mean, that's it. That's you've done something special. I, I, I totally agree. I think uh, one of the great measures of a good whodunit is if you can guess who did it and you still want to keep reading. Right. Yeah, there you go. And now this this isn't a whodunit, but that's that's the classic example. Because if it's just there for the puzzle and you guess the puzzle, then you then you don't like the book. Then you think, well, the author failed. Uh, but the ideal, the best detective story is the one where, yeah, the puzzle's good, but it doesn't matter whether you guessed it because you care about the characters. You want to see what happened mm-hmm. next. I can't listen to the teddy bears picnic anymore without thinking of that that man dying. You know. Uh, Stephen King just has. I, it goes without saying. Just this enormous. Uh, talent for making you care about his characters and awfully quickly, you know, within a page, usually you read the first page of a King book and you're in, you're hooked. You care about those characters. And I look at that as a writer, I look at that and ask the question, how does he do it? You know, what is it about the words he puts on one page that gets you hooked so fast? And his son does the same thing, by the way, Joe Hill. Uh, I don't mean to suggest he has only the one son, but Joe Hill (laughs) writes in a very similar way and with a similar effect, such that one page into one of the Joe Hill books, you kind of are, you're, you're hooked. You, you can't walk away. Uh, so I, I think there are a handful of writers like that. Lawrence Block is another one. We've published probably 10 books by Lawrence Block in our line. He's one of my favorite uh, authors and not as well known as Stephen King, of course, but what a fantastic writer he is. And that's, that's part of the pleasure of Hard Case Crime for me. There are these writers whose work I know, books that I know. Sometimes it's just one book by a writer and everything else the writer wrote was not very good, but there's one that was great. Or it's a whole career worth of good books. And he's just not that well known anymore. And I love bringing that person back. So bringing back Wade Miller. Nobody remembers Wade Miller. Wade Miller wasn't even a person. Wade Miller was two people, two cousins, Bob Wade and I'm going to say Bill Miller. I may be wrong, but it's a man named Wade and a man named Bill Miller. They were cousins and they wrote books that included Kitten with a Whip that became an Anne Margaret movie and uh, Touch of Evil, which was originally called Badge of Evil, which became the Orson Welles uh, movie. He wrote a book called or they wrote a book called Branded Woman. I fell in love with Branded Woman. It's a great read. It was written in 1953, I think. And uh, you read it now more than half a century later. And it's like it's on fire. Nobody had read this book in half a century. And I love the idea that I could pluck it off my bookshelf and bring it back and thousands of people read this book that maybe they otherwise would never read. That's fun. That's exciting. You know, man, I got to, I got to pull down a book real after this, but uh, I'm stuck on one thing, how we're talking about basically just like the unmatched prolificness of King's work, his 
production. And that's the, that's the stuff that gets published. I'm sure even he has stuff that are still getting shrunked. Um, maybe, although I think at this point, maybe not. I mean, obviously I don't know. I, I haven't, I haven't gone looking at his trunk, but uh, I don't know. <clears throat> I, at one point I was talking with him uh, around the time. Um, I've never told the story actually around the time that we were promoting Joyland, I guess it was. And he said, I've, just written a book. I just finished it. And I'm thinking maybe I'll leave this one to be published posthumously. And I thought that's interesting, but then he published it and that was revival. <laughs> so I think the, the, the trunk may be empty. You know, I don't know. I don't think he's leaving anything the way Agatha Christie did. She left two books behind for after she died, uh, but who knows? Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe there is something. The thing is at this point, nothing goes in the trunk because nobody wants to publish it. Oh, yeah. True. If he, if he no feels doubt. it's good enough and he puts it out there, somebody will publish it. In fact, not only somebody, it's it's Scribner's, his regular publisher, and they will gladly take, I think, as many books as he feels like writing. It's really a miracle that uh, they allowed us. I mean, they they and he together allowed us, but Scribner could easily say to him, listen, we're your main publisher. We spend millions of dollars, not just paying you for your books, but promoting them and marketing them. Uh, what do you mean you want to also on the side work with this little tiny house um, <laughs> just because you admire them and like what they do? They could easily have put up a fuss and they didn't. And and for that, I give them a lot of credit. You know, it's, it's obviously I give 99.9% of the credit to Stephen King himself, who who had the idea of doing it and stuck with us. And uh, But Scribner also behaved like like princes. And I'm very grateful. See, this is exactly why I want more people that just aren't writers to be on the show because me and Brennan, we're ardent fans of the industry, man, and the process. So thank you for that story. Sure. That's amazing. Um, I was just going to say, we were lucky enough to have Peter Straub on last uh, year. And I, I only bring that up because at one point I had asked him if there's going to be a third, if, uh, if they're going to complete like the trilogy. Yeah. He, he said, I'm paraphrasing. I do not want anyone quoting me because it ended up on some Stephen King sites. Oh, I don't know how, but um, <laughs> but I'm paraphrasing. But basically, he said that he actually no, he tweeted that he's retired. Okay, so oh, I'm not I haven't heard that. Okay, yeah, yeah so yeah, I'm not I haven't to Peter in a while. I know he had he had some health issues, and I hope he's well. Um, I, I, I admire him greatly and I would have loved to do a hard case crime book with him. I would um, love that as a fan of both of you, but um, uh, it never came to be. So what are you going to do? You, you, you can't, you can't, uh, hit a home run every, every time you come up to bat. And, uh, there, there are definitely ones that got away, both authors and write and, uh, artists also, there were some artists that I would have loved to get a cover from. And by the time we reached them. They felt they were too old. They couldn't paint as well as they used to, and they didn't. Uh, they they didn't do it. Uh, and there's certainly authors in that category. Uh, but uh, yeah, sure. Peter Straub would have been one that that I'd love to have gotten. Yeah, he um, he said that Steve told him one time that if he couldn't write, he'd be on uh, on an overpass with a rifle. <laughs> and I bring that up because yeah. that's the kind of drive he's got. Yeah, like any great athlete, you know they. That's their thing. And they're going to beat the pants out of anyone that tries to go against them. And in this case, it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, in every case, it's against yourself. Um, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're pushed by whatever demons are inside you. And demons are not necessarily, uh, you know, the supernatural kind. 
uh, they're, they're the motivating force, right? And uh, the, the, there's this notion from the old philosophers that the, there's the human body and then inside there's a homunculus that leaves, lives inside and moves your arms and legs and so forth. Well, <laughs> I, I think if you talk to a writer like Stephen King, but not only, they'll, they'll say they don't necessarily know where the, uh, the force comes from that, that uh, shoves ideas out from the brain, through the fingertips, onto the keyboard, but they keep coming. And uh, as long as they keep coming, you, you just, you, you, you let yourself keep going with it. Absolutely. Um, so we talked about this off air, but we do have a question from uh, TJ Tranchel. He's he's, uh, an, he's a fellow author amongst uh, many things. And he just asked, uh, what is your favorite hard case crime cover? And there will be a link in the show notes for anyone that wants to see this. So okay. Charles, what's your favorite cover? Oh man, it's so hard to say. So I, I will give you some examples. So there was a, there was a painter uh, who's not with us anymore. He died very young. He was only 52, uh, named Glenn Orbeck. He was a great comic book cover painter and a great cover painter for us. He must've done a dozen or two dozen covers for us. Uh, and Glenn did some of the very best covers. He, he did the cover for my own book, 50 to one, which I particularly like, not just because it's a great painting in and of itself, but it's a painting of the editor of hard case crime. Not really me, you know, someone much more handsome than me, uh, sitting at a desk with a bunch of hard case crime books on the desk. And he painted little miniature versions of a whole bunch <laughs> of our covers, which is just this virtuoso act, because even if you see the original painting, which is hanging on my wall at home, uh, he only had a few brush strokes for each of those little miniature covers, and somehow he made them look exactly right. Um, so Glenn did that. He did Branded Woman, which I think is probably his single best cover for us, also the very first he ever did. Uh, but if you go onto our website and you click on Glenn Orbick under Artists, you can see all of them, and they're just gorgeous. Uh, Robert McGinnis, I mentioned him before. McGinnis was painting in the 60s, uh, maybe 50s as well. He's 96 years old right now. He's still painting. And he's most famous for painting the movie posters for the James Bond movies with Sean Connery back in the day. Um, he no also kidding. painted the uh, the famous poster of Audrey Hepburn with the cigarette holder and the cat on her shoulder for Breakfast at Tiffany's. And okay. uh, he painted a thousand paperback covers back in the day, including my dad's favorites, the Brett Halliday books. And uh, he came to work for us and paint covers for us. He also must have done two dozen by now. He did my first uh, book, my own first novel, uh, Little Girl Lost. So I'm fond of that. Uh, but probably his best covers for us. Oh, it's it's uh, it's hard to pick because he's so good. But Lawrence Block's novel, The Girl with the Long Green Heart, is a particular favorite of mine. Um, he had, did an Ed McBain cover for us called Cut Me In, which is just gorgeous. His his women look incredible. Um so that's uh, that's McGinnis and Orbic, and then there's a painter named uh, Greg Manchus. Uh, if you saw the Coen Brothers movie, The Ballad of Buster Scraggs, which I don't think too many people did see, it was a western, a sort of uh, episodic six uh, episode western, uh, and maybe it wasn't Ballad, but Buster Scruggs, Scraggs, Scruggs, I think Scruggs. Anyway, he they the Coen Brothers did I think for Netflix an anthology movie with six separate stories, and each one opened with a painting, an old fashioned painting of the Wild West, and Greg did all those paintings for them. Uh, he did covers for us, and his first for us, Fade to Blonde, is, is a particularly nice one. Uh, his cover for Michael Crichton's book, Grave Descend, was wonderful. And uh, so between Orbic, Manchus, and McGinnis, you, you, you cover a lot of ground. More recently, we've been working with a, a painter named Paul Mann mm -hmm. out in Utah. Uh, he did the cover for Quentin Tarantino's first novel uh, based on Once Upon a Time in uh, Hollywood. Very cool. And he's, he's done probably a dozen for us as well. 
and his his covers are gorgeous. So, you know, I, I don't I don't want to single out any one artist is better than the others, but these are fantastic cover artists. And if you just want to trip down memory lane for old fashioned looking paintings, beautiful women and uh, situations of great peril, check them out on our website. Uh, <laughs> That's great. Uh, we have one more question. It's from the author of Don't Know Tough, Eli Craner, which off air and probably on air, I can't remember this point. I I can't stop talking about this book. It's it's a crime uh, fiction book, and it's just it's phenomenal. But um, I, I've heard, yeah, I've heard that it's absolutely stunning. You know, the the guy who wrote uh, James Kestrel, who wrote uh, Five Decembers, which maybe we'll talk about a little later. Which that's his question. Uh, He's gonna ask. Oh, is it okay? So so uh, Kestrel tells me that Craner's book is outstanding. So I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to because it's it's apparently one of the best that uh, that's out there right now. I would say so. Um, you know, S.A. Cosby? Yeah, Sean Cosby. Sure. I would be very shocked. And I don't say this slightly. I'd be shocked if Eli's career was not where Sean's is in a couple of years, man. It's, really? Wow. Uh, wow. That's really saying I, something. I, I'm like you guys. I read a lot. And this one, um, I'll, let me talk about super quick because maybe sure. I'll hit bullet, bullet points. Uh, so basically, it takes place in the South. It's about this kid, Billy Lowe. He is very good at uh, playing football and says uh, the title don't know tough is uh, basically you learn how Billy knows a tough life and it's character driven. It's really sad. And it's about, in my opinion, fatherhood, not a father and son, but in, in a generality. And that's my weak point, I guess, because yeah. I have a kid now, but it's everything good that you ever want in a book, and it's going to sit with oh, you probably forever. I, I'm going to pick it up now. I, as soon as I'm off of your podcast, I'm going straight to uh, <laughs> order the book. I, seriously, I've been wanting to read it for a while now, and I just keep forgetting to buy it, forgetting to buy it. And now I'm not going to let myself forget. I'm going to I'm going to go get it. That's great. Please uh, tell me what you think, man. For sure. Do it. Um, so this That's is really question. cool. This is so cool. You know what? I just got to focus on one more thing about okay. James and uh, Eli. It's so cool because like all of us in the industry, we're like one author away from either knowing that person or or we're talking about there are as if like we're kind of friends. And, you know, you brought up James talking about Eli without knowing that Eli had a question about James. I just think that's amazing. <laughs> and then world. at the same time. Don Winslow is uh, talking, commenting, and seeing, saying how you know how happy he is for their uh, success so far. Oh, and I just saw Don uh, last week at a reading in Pennsylvania, and that he's so nice. Oh, that's that's great. You know, we we tried to reach out to him. I don't I don't know him. So I I know a bunch of people in the field. I don't know Don. Uh, but when we were first putting together the um, you know, trying to try to reach people about five Decembers because James Kestrel is a uh, it's a pseudonym of an author who has published several books before, but this was a real departure from his earlier work. Hmm. And uh, nobody knows the name now they do. Ooh. Before we published this book, no one had ever heard of the name James Kestrel because it was invented. <laughs> it was a brand new name, so it was literally an, an, a name that nobody knew. And we were trying to reach out to authors, and one of the authors that. Uh, that James, I'll call him James, uh, was very keen to reach was Don Winslow, but I didn't know how to get to him. And so I didn't manage to get the book to him before it was published, but having, I, I know it means a lot to, to the author, uh, having Don comment on it and be supportive just means a, a huge amount to him. Yeah, man. He, he's, he's just simply one of the best. Um, okay. So Eli, yes. 
<laughs> so he says, uh, ask him about discovering James Kestrel and his failings when he first read the manuscript Five Decembers. I'm about halfway through now and ready to take a time machine back to the 50s in Hawaii. And you know what? I'm right there with him there and uh, and parts of Japan. I mean, yeah, it's an extraordinary book. So I wasn't looking to publish a World War II novel. It's not an area that I'm particularly keen on. It's not the main thing we do. I mean, a lot of our books are set around that time in the 40s, 50s, but uh, that doesn't mean we deal with war specifically. You know, it's it's like a veteran who returned from war, but we don't generally do war stories. We do crime stories. So in comes this book from the agent. We get books a lot of different ways. Sometimes authors reach out to us directly. Sometimes agents do. Sometimes I go hunting down an author whose work I like and say, hey, you got anything for us? In this case, the agent sent it to us. And uh, later I found out that before sending it to us, she'd sent it to 26 other publishers, all of whom said no, which is extraordinary because it's, it's, it's a masterpiece. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal book. And so I, I sat down to read it hoping I could it would be bad. So I could say no quickly because I was busy. I think this was Thanksgiving. I was at my in-laws house and I just felt obliged to answer this, this uh, query. I try to turn around any query I get within 24 hours. And so I start reading this book thinking, okay, it's going to be lousy because most books are in fact lousy. And the sooner it's, if it's going to be lousy in the end, the sooner it's bad, the happier I'll be. And I started reading it and it wasn't lousy. And I was so angry. I was so frustrated. Can't it just get bad already? It's not going to be good all the way to the end. And so I kept going, kept going better and better and better. And there's this point that you hit in the middle of the book. And I won't give it away because it's it's a kind of spoiler. There's this point you hit in the middle of the book where the whole thing changes. It's not at all the book you thought it was going to be. It opens as a kind of L.A. confidential style, James Elroy style, a police procedural. You've got a cop in Honolulu, Hawaii. There are two dead bodies. He's investigating who killed these people. There, there's violence. There's action, gruesome stuff. And he's chasing a killer overseas. And you think that that's the kind of book it's going to be. <laughs> well, you're, you're in for a surprise. So very often I hear from people and they say things like what Eli wrote to you. They say, I'm halfway through this book and loving it. And in fact, Stephen King is one of the people who wrote that. Uh, I'm halfway through this book and loving it. And whenever I hear that, I say, oh, you don't know what <laughs> loving it is. You don't know. Because the halfway point is the point at which the book takes a 180 degree turn and it becomes something very different. It stops being a mystery. It stops being a detective story for a while. And it becomes a story of survival of pain, of love, of sacrifice. And it becomes this sweeping story set during the war that is just a human story in a way that the best novels are. And so this is like Hemingway. This is like the really great writing, great uh, storytelling. And when the ordeal of World War II ends and the main character, it's not too much of a spoiler to reveal that the main character is still the main character after the war. Uh, when it ends, he feels so... Uh, alienated and and not a part of anything anymore. He's lost everything that mattered to him. And uh, he has only one thing left to do, which is to solve this four-year-old murder that nobody cares about anymore. <laughs> so he comes back to Honolulu and he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna solve this murder. And they say, why? You know, we've just been through a world war. Millions of people were murdered. Millions of people died. What do we care? about these two, but he has to solve it because he's got nothing else in his life. That's what he does. He's a cop. That's so it's an extraordinary book. I read it, uh, you know, like any editor, I, I always find things to, to, to suggest and change and tweak, but it was, it was clearly an extraordinary book. And I just had to uh, persuade the folks at Titan 
uh, you know, I choose all of our books, but I don't get to publish any of them unless I'm able to make the case to Titan that it's worth doing because they're mm-hmm. the ones who are, you know, investing heavily in things like paper and ink and warehousing and shipping and Salesforce and all that. And I described this book to them and I said, this is one of the best books I've read in my life, period. It's probably the best book I've read in the last five, six, seven years. That's fair. Period. And I'm not, I'm not going to not publish this book, you know? And when you find a book this good, you don't not publish it. That's what you do. You publish it. And so we did, but all along the way, it was like, ah, it is great. But how do you convince people that a book is like, there are a thousand books in the bookstore. I walk into a bookstore. I know there are great books there, but which one? How do I pick it up? How do I know which one to pick up? And this was a real challenge. And that's why we were reaching out to people like Don Winslow. Uh, But not only Don, you know, we reached out to Dennis Lehane, who never gives blurbs. He's so busy. He's a very nice guy, but he he, he just doesn't have time to do that sort of thing. Um, And he kindly agreed to give a blurb. And that made a huge difference. Megan Abbott, who's a good friend and a a phenomenal writer. Uh, James Fallows, who's who's a phenomenal journalist. and there were a number of other people who got behind it early on, and that made a big difference. And suddenly, people started reading it. But the truth is, I, I went door to door in the in the um, in the internet age. Door to door is something different than it used to be. But <laughs> I went to everyone on our mailing list, and I said, "I'm going to send you a free copy of this book. It doesn't exist yet. There are no physical copies. I'm going to email you this book. Please don't pirate it. Please don't give it away to your friends. But I'm giving it to you for free, and I'm going to do this. I don't care how many copies. I'll do hundreds." And I sent out the book and I said, listen, just read it. You, you won't be sorry. I promise you, you won't be sorry. If you're sorry, never trust me again. You're not going to be sorry. And the, re- the reaction was enormous. And bit by bit, word of mouth started to build. So it's like, you know, when you're a poker player, when do you put all your chips into the center of the table? Either you're a bluffer and maybe you can win or you really have a Royal flush. Well, you don't get a Royal flush very often. This was our Royal flush. And I just put all my chips in and I said, this is it, you know, and it just won the Edgar Allan Poe award for best novel of the year. And I'm very proud of it. Uh, I really thought that uh, Sean's book, Razor Blade Tears, which is also outstanding uh, and got a huge amount of attention and probably outsold five Decembers, two to one or 10 to one. Uh, I thought that was likely to win. And if it had, it would have been a deserving winner. Uh, but I, I was beyond, ecstatic and proud for 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 james that he won it it's a deserving book too yeah uh razor blade tears is definitely awesome i see it in all the targets i go into too but um yeah, yeah as far as james book goes uh what, what can you say besides you hit the nail on the head on every aspect i mean Thanks. it's got everything i don't know what to add to that because all the right people have blurbed it so or tweeted about it <laughs> Yeah, but you know, every 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 voice counts. You know, part of what makes me so happy is when people who are not professionals say nice things about a book, or even better, when somebody who doesn't read, you know, somebody says, I gave this book to my dad, he doesn't read, and he fell in love with this book. That feels so good, you know? And uh, that's not to say that a blurb from somebody who gives a lot of blurbs isn't uh, deeply meaningful, because it sure is, and it probably has a bigger impact on sales. But when I see somebody on Twitter say, uh, I finally picked this up after hearing about it eight times from eight different people. I finally picked it up and man, you were right. That's a good book. You know, it's like, why, why do we publish books at all? The average book, even the average good book is uh, it's fairly entertaining. It's pretty good. It's ingenious. It's clever. It has something good about it, but by definition, it can't be the case that every book is the best book you've read. It can't. Mm -hmm. 
But when you finally find one that is or is of that caliber where you say, I'm not going to forget this book, you know, I'm going to be on my deathbed in my 80s or 90s, and I'm going to be thinking about the best books I've read. This is going to be one of them. And when you finally find one that good, being able to put that into people's hands and give them that experience, that's that means a lot. You know, that that's why we do it. it it's this isn't no, nobody goes into book publishing to make a buck. You know? <laughs> All you're going to make is a buck. One. That's it. One buck. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you can make more money doing almost anything else. Uh, literally, I, I sit proofreading my books and with the hours I spend, it's it. McDonald's would pay better. Seriously. <laughs> uh, but I love it. And it's a book like this that really is why. You know, that's beautiful. And I was just, uh, there's some guys at my work where I uh, talk about books too. And I was just talking to one of my buddies today, this morning. And it's the second time I talked about it. The last few days I've been telling about five Decembers. And uh, I said, dude, honestly, like, you know, those books that literally make your stomach have jitters, like these excited feeling this book did it. And I kept looking at the percentage and I'm like, this feels like the end. Holy shit. I'm only 50% through six and it, it just never stops being amazing. But um, it, yeah, it made me feel just three or four days. I think uh, it took me to get through it, but cause I do, t- I do text to speech. So it's a lot faster okay. than if it were the physical one, but um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, I, it's not a short book. I mean, it's not one of these monster doorstops that's a thousand pages. Not to say that's bad. I mean, Stephen King's done a number of thousand page books and they're great. <laughs> uh, it, it's not that, but it's probably it's close to half that. It's 430 or something like that. And uh, and every page counts and you, you don't wish it were shorter. You really no, don't. You, for you, sure. You, for sure. Love for the story to go on. People have said, could there be a sequel? I don't think there could be a sequel. I mean, there could. There can be a sequel to anything, but who needs it? You know, it's a complete story. The, the story's done. And yeah, uh, yeah but I'm dying to see what he writes next. I really don't know what he's going to write next. Me too. And uh, you know, basically I just, I got so excited every time uh, I was about to read it. And um, it's no secret for people that listen to the show, but Coco is one of my favorite books of all time. And and this, like, I do not say this slightly. This is a book that goes on that shelf. That same shelf. Uh, yeah. as Coco. Thank you. Thank you. No, I, I totally, totally agree. Yeah. So look, somebody asked me the other day, um, in fact, it was a bookseller who said she's been selling a lot of copies of Five Decembers and uh, what other books on the li- in the line would I recommend? Well, you know, that's kind of a layup question in the sense that I'm happy if you buy any of them. That's great. <laughs> I'll, I'll take the sales. Uh, but, you know, what are some other books that would give people that same uh, reaction? I'd certainly put Joyland on that list. And I did. I, I don't remember exactly what list I gave her. I you know, came up with 10 books because she wanted a, a top 10 list. And uh, but there are definitely some original novels that we published reprints, too. But there's some original novels that just you know people love and, and rightly so. There's a book uh, which Stephen King loved called Charles Gate Confidential based set in Boston uh, mm-hmm. in three different periods of time in the 40s, the 80s and the present day, all in the same building. And there's a crime from the 40s that is still haunting people in the 80s and then new bodies start turning up in the present day. And it's a really clever, smart emotional book. So that that's one. If, if people read five, to, it's a very different book. It's not the same in any way, but um, five uh, Charles Gate Confidential by an author named Scott Von Dobiak might uh, push some of the same buttons and Joyland by Stephen King. I'll give you one obscure one here, just, just for good measure, because you guys said you like the reprints. So uh, Joyland and Charles Gate Confidential and Five Decembers were all brand new books written for us specifically, or we were the first publisher. There's a book called So Many Doors, which by the way, is a weird title. 
so many doors by Oakley Hall. Hmm, and that's a new that, one for me. Yeah, yeah. So who, who's Oakley Hall? Well, he was a writing professor in, uh, I think, California. And his students included Anne Rice, um, <laughs> Michael Chabon. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, there were two or three other, Amy Tan, like major, major writers. And he taught them. And he wrote novels himself. And he wrote a book called So Many Doors, which was from the 50s, I think, early 50s. And I picked up a copy and started reading it. And it knocked me for a loop very much the way five Decembers did. And uh, that's another one. That's just that you're in tears at the end. When you get to the end, it's, it's just so, so painful and so beautiful. So, so many doors by Oakley hall. Uh, you can see it with frankly, a fantastic Robert McGinnis cover um, based on reference photos shot by Robert McGuire. Here's an interesting random tidbit for true trivia fans. There was a wonderful painter named Robert McGuire. I've mentioned him a couple of times in this, in this interview. Uh, McGuire was uh, no longer painting by the time we started Hard Case Crime, although I did get a chance to talk to him at least. And uh, he painted a huge number of covers, all beautiful, uh, in the 40s, 50s, 60s. And uh, he painted from reference photos. So he would hire models or he'd pose himself. For the male characters, he was usually the model himself. <laughs> female characters, he didn't go that far. So for the female <laughs> characters, he'd hire models. And he had thousands of photographs, black and white photographs that he took of these women in various different poses, holding a knife, holding a gun, that he never used. You know, he, he took thousands of photos. He didn't do thousands of covers. So his daughter uh, sent me some of his photos and said, do you think uh, one of your current artists might be interested in painting a painting you, based on one of my dad's photos that he never used. And I went to Robert McGinnis, now 96 years old, and said, what do you think about this collaboration? He, they never collaborated. These are these two giants of paperback illustration. They never worked together. I said, why don't you take McGuire's old photo and you paint based on it, and it'll be a collaboration between the two of you. And it came out terrific. It's the cover for So Many Doors. It's kind of risque, kind of sexy. Uh, beautifully painted. Anyway, uh, that book is the heartbreaking book. The cover is a gorgeous cover. I don't see what more you would want out of life than a heartbreaking book with a gorgeous cover. Uh, that could be our tagline, heartbreaking books with gorgeous covers. And uh, it's like, whatever, I 14 bucks, 12.95. I don't even remember what, what the price is. Probably these days on Amazon, you can get it for 9.95. I don't know, but, or, or ebook. I'm sure it's in, in Kindle. And that's an old book with some old fashioned language and so forth, but uh, what a fantastic read it is. So that if, if you want another recommendation, so many doors, by Oakley, we, yeah, wrote it down. you will never find on your own. I promise you, you will not wake up in the morning saying, Hey, Oakley Hall, how about something? <laughs> It'll never happen. So I'm happy to point you toward that book. You, you will not be sorry. That's awesome. Uh, another older one, I think it's from 63, Daldy Westlake's 361. Yeah. I, I wouldn't put that in the same, personally, as the same as Five Decembers, but it's still no, really, it's a really, really good book. I, I, I agree. So, yeah, that one never had a paperback edition. He published it as a hardcover novel. Nobody ever wanted to put it out in paperback in this country. <laughs> I think there was a uh, there was a British paperback. And so we got to be the first paperback. Don was still alive at that point. And uh, I remember having a conversation with him, figuring out what to do on the cover, because all of our covers have beautiful women. Every one of them. That's not true. There's one that doesn't a book called Witness to Myself. But we there you go. So there's the cover. And I said to Don, the problem with this book, I love the book. The problem with this book is there are no women in it. There's not a single female character in the book. There are a couple of women in the background in some scenes, but there's yeah. no single character. And he said, well, that's okay. What difference does it make? Paint a painting. <laughs> you've got your male, male lead and have him walking down the street 
you know, looking morose. He's really deep in thought. He's miserable. And behind him on the wall, there's a billboard advertising lingerie. There, there you go. That's a solution. That's how you get a beautiful woman in. And uh, we didn't do that, but we did do a scene where uh, there's a party going on and, and one of the women at the party is quite attractive. So there's there's my solution uh, or the, the artist solution. That's Rick Farrell, who's another great cover artist that did a bunch of covers for us. Uh, so yeah, 361 is great. Uh, if you like Westlake, he wrote both serious books and funny books. One of the funniest he ever wrote was called uh, Help, I'm Being Held Prisoner. <laughs> I'm being held prisoner is set in a prison and there are these uh, prisoners who have dug an escape tunnel, only they don't use it to escape. So they have a tunnel out of jail, like in Shawshank Redemption, they've got a tunnel out. And what they're doing is they sneak out through the tunnel, rob a bank, go back in through the tunnel. And now they're back in prison and they've got the perfect alibi. They couldn't have robbed the bank. They were in prison. Anyway, that's the premise, and it's very, very funny. It's 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 hilarious. I can so, see that working as a comedy. It works as a comedy, right? It doesn't make any sense <laughs> as, as a serious book. Uh, and and Westlake has a number of other really good ones. He has one called Double Feature, which is two novellas. And I think people generally prefer a single novel to two novellas, but these are great, great novellas. Both of them have been filmed. Uh, one is called, oh, now, of course, I'm going to forget what it's called, but the book itself is double feature and they both have movie connections. The second one is called Ordo and was filmed under that title, Ordo. The first one, I, which I can't remember the title of, uh, was filmed with uh, William H. Macy. It's very, the first one's very funny. The second's very sad. Great book, double feature. There, You won't go wrong with Westlake. All of Westlakes are, are, are really terrific reads. That's awesome. Brennan, I've been hogging there. Do you have any questions that you'd like to... I'd actually like to uh, go into your role as as editor. Yeah. And, you know, as a rule, that's going to be a very, very diverse experience. But with hard case kind of shooting for that lean and mean uh, old pulpy paperback feel, how do you approach editing? Yeah, well, half our books are reprints, so I don't edit those at all. And that's great. For the rest, <laughs> uh, like half the time the authors are dead. So I have a very free hand in the editing. That's also great. Uh, fortunately, the authors who are alive and uh, need to be edited because, uh, not need to be edited because the books are bad. Obviously, if a book's bad, I don't buy it, uh, but just need to be edited because they're alive. And, you know, you buy a book, you have to do something to it. Uh, if only fixing typos, uh, they've all been great. They've all been good to work with. And that's not always the case. I mean, I've had submissions that I liked and the author has turned out to be so much of a pain in the ass that I'd rather not work with them. And so I don't buy the book. Uh, which is a shame sometimes because the book is good, but it's it's not worth the headache. Um, but all the authors we've actually bought books from have been a pleasure to work with. Uh, some of them fight tooth and nail to keep a certain phrase that they love, even if I think, well, that phrase is a little awkward. That's okay. In the end, they're the author. If 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 they want it the way they say, they get it that way. In the end, they're the the ones whose name is on the front of the book. I mean, my name is in there too, somewhere in the fine print, but their <laughs> name is big. Uh, so any author who really cares for a, a, a point will win that point with me, but I'll, I'll be, I'm not shy. And I'll go back to the authors and say, I think this book could be improved in the following ways. You tell me if you agree, uh, or if you disagree, tell me why, and let's see if we can find a, a, a solution. And I think there are a number of books that have been strengthened that way. Um, I do appreciate that when an author is dead and we're working with the author's son or granddaughter or other heirs, uh, when they have allowed me to uh, make changes to an unpublished manuscript, I'm very grateful for that. There was a book uh, called Honey in His Mouth 
by Lester Dent. Now, Lester Dent became famous for creating a character called Doc Savage, one of the great pulp action heroes, the man mm -hmm. of bronze, uh, soon to become a movie or TV series, I think. I, I heard that on, online somewhere. Uh, but he also wrote a number of, of uh, non-Doc Savage books, and this was one that he never published. Uh, I assume he wrote it toward the end of his life. And it was terrific. A really uh, wonderful pulp novel with an insane premise and lots of fun uh, developments. And it was very clear how the book needed to end. And that's not how the book ended. It was perfect. The book was really good up to the last 10 pages. And those 10 pages needed to be changed. And it was just so clear what the right ending to this book was. Unfortunately, I was able to work with the estate and they agreed. And uh, the current ending, everyone, everyone loves it. And I'm thrilled uh, that we were able to make that change. If Dent were alive, I'd like to think that he would have been happy with the change. Of course, who knows? We'll, know, we'll never know. Um, there, there. I guess. Let me think. Are there any cases where something has been, you know, too hard a fight, and I gave up on it, and never, you know, and regret? I can't think of anything I've regretted. Really, really regret. I mean, there, there are certainly places where I've said, you know, present tense is weird here. Don't use the present tense here. Use use past tense for the rest of the book. This it's weird to have this one sentence in the present tense, and the author says, "Yeah, but I like it." Okay, fine. You can have it. <laughs> Let's not argue over that. Uh, but generally, the authors have been really good to work with. Uh, it's harder in some ways uh, when we're commissioning cover art and you have to uh, edit that. I mean, there's, you, you can't edit art exactly, but go back to the artist and say, uh, we want some changes in the cover art. That doesn't happen too often, but once in a while it does. And that's an interesting challenge because I know how to edit language. I know how to edit words. I'm a writer myself. I'm not a painter. If you put a paintbrush in my hand, you'll get something unspeakably ugly. I promise. <laughs> And so when I go to a really great artist and I say, you've done something wonderful here, but it's not working. And, and I try to explain why it's hard because I'm not trained as a visual artist. So I don't have the vocabulary for it. Fortunately, Max Phillips, my co-founder and uh, art director, graphic designer, uh, he has an enormous uh, facility with that, that uh, vocabulary. And he's able to look at a, at a painting and say, you know, the, the um, eye socket is too wide on the right. And you think, is that what's wrong? And then the painter changes the eye socket by a millimeter. And it's like, oh yeah, that's what was wrong. That's it. You got it. Uh, so I'm very grateful that, that Max is able to do that. He'll say, you know, the, the, the left shoulder is not attached in the right way. And here's what you need to do. And I just, I love that. It, it feels like when you watch one of these cooking shows on TV and it's one of these master chefs and they just twist the spatula a little and suddenly you've got a seven layer cake. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't understand how artists do what they do, visual artists, but I'm very grateful to get to work with them. Yeah. Um, all right. So from the broad to the very specific, okay. I, I am so interested in that story about the Lester Dent book. Um, if so, if, if you're almost just kind of redoing the last 10 pages, is that odd to kind of go beyond the scope of simply editing and almost trying to like mimic the voice yes. to, to change the story. Yeah, so it, it is. It is odd. On the other hand, it um, that kind of mimicry is, is a big part of editing and always has been, you know, you look at the marked up manuscripts of like F Scott Fitzgerald, which I think, I think the editor was Maxwell Perkins, who was famous for taking a very active hand in editing. Now Fitzgerald was alive, but here's the guy who wrote the great Gatsby and he turns in a manuscript how do you work on that manuscript? Do you just cut things out or do you ever put in words? And if Fitzgerald likes how you did it, do your words become part of the permanent record of how Fitzgerald wrote? And I think it's good to, it's good to propose uh, 
new words in a book if you think you're able to do it productively, if you're if you're actually contributing something. And of course, with a living writer, they can decide, yes, I like it, no, I don't. In the case of a deceased writer, you feel this enormous responsibility because what's what you're doing is going to go out over that person's name. But keep in mind that, you know, the last 10 pages of a book out of 300 pages, that's still, you know, well under 10% of the book. Uh, and in fact, there was fresh writing in the last 10 pages, but uh, there was plenty that was original to, to Dent. It's not like the entire last 10 pages were written by me. Uh, it's just a paragraph here, a paragraph there to change some, some basic stuff. The, the book is about uh, mistaken identity. It's about a dictator in Latin America and a grifter in North America who is a dead ringer for the uh, dictator. And these people who want to stage a coup against the dictator and rob his treasury of some, I, I forget what the treasure is, but there's some treasure they want to steal. They uh, perform plastic surgery on the grifter to make him look even more, like he already looked like the dictator, but they're performing additional surgery to give him a little scar in the right place. So he'll look even more like the dictator. And they're training him. They're, they're you know, making him bone up on facts from the dictator's life so he'll be able to impersonate him. You can't have that be the setup. And then in the end pages, not have him. You, 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 the end has to play off of the fact that he looks like the dictator. It's just got to. <laughs> you cannot write that book and not have the ending have something to do with that. It was just that that is so obvious. It's beyond obvious. So I did not feel at all guilty. I felt that this was so clearly what Dent was doing, where he was going and where he where it needed to go. So I didn't feel bad about that at all. It was uh, tricky in the case of James M. Cain, who was this phenomenal writer of classic novels like Double Indemnity and The Postman Always Rings Twice. And he had a final manuscript that was unpublished called The Cocktail Waitress. And the thing that was tricky there was he wrote at least four or five different versions of the book. <laughs> and so, oh my God. Yeah. You know, there was a handwritten version, a typewritten version. There was a first person version, a third person version. And there were scenes that were in one version and not in another. There were <laughs> the same scene done two different ways. And so I had to stitch it together so that you took the best of all the different versions and put it together in a way that was coherent. Uh, so that, that's a different kind of challenge, but, but it was fun. You know, I was happy to yeah. do it. Your, your comments on uh, both the Dent book and, um, uh, Fitzgerald's editing reminded me of, uh, I, I had a writer friend, uh, Tyler Jones, uh, beta read, uh, a book I have coming out next year. Okay. And Congratulations. he, well, thank you. Um, th there were certain parts where he would make a note and say, you know, change this, you know, think about changing this to whatever. And a lot of times I would look at his notes and I'd say, that's a lot better than what I have. And <laughs> I, I had, you know, sent him a text at one point. I said, I feel really guilty about, you know, how much, how many of your words I'm like almost verbatim putting in here. And he said, anything that I suggested was inspired by the surrounding story that you wrote. So ergo, totally it's agree. not, it's, it, you know, it, it is your voice. It is uh, your story. It's just a different way of looking at it. And that's, you know, kind of totally how I agree. approach. Yeah. I don't think you should feel guilty. And I don't, I don't think I, I don't feel guilty. In fact, I, I feel, <laughs> I, I, I can think of all sorts of inappropriate metaphors, uh, but <laughs> say, I, I say feel, them all, Charles. Yeah, yeah, right. Right. <laughs> it's like, um, you know, is it is it like a mortician's assistant who takes the corpse and puts makeup on it? Well, that's not fair. These are great books. They're not corpses. Uh, but 
what what is the job of of the editor? It's to take the uh, creative work of the writer and present it to its best effect. And whether that means typesetting it in a good font with plenty of air between the lines so that people can read it without getting a headache or uh, putting a great cover on it so people will be tempted to pick it up and read it in the first place. Those are examples of presenting the book to its best effect. Why wouldn't you, if you know how to fix a broken sentence, why wouldn't you do your best to do that? Uh, it, it's it's a 100,000 word book, or maybe it's only 60,000 words. And over the course of 60,000 words, you change 500. That's still 59,500 that are the original <laughs> author's words. Don't, don't feel bad about it. You know, if you can make it better, I think editors sadly have um, have have mostly lost the habit of what I think of as real editing. Editing is not just picking the books. It's not just acquiring them. And it's certainly not just writing the back cover copy, although that's important. Uh, you have to go in there with your hands, get your hands dirty. It's It's like, you know, you're a mechanic working on a car. You can't be squeamish about that. You have to turn those lug nuts and get grease on your fingers. And it's it's the grease on your fingers aspect to editing that makes me feel I'm doing a good job. You know, uh, mm. I, I, I want that engine purring. I want the, the car going beautifully and, and the person driving it is the author. And then the author is generally grateful if it, uh, if it runs better. So I think I ran that metaphor into the ground, but in any event, <laughs> I, I think I agree with you. And I agree with, with, um, with your friend who said that uh, you shouldn't feel you're taking anything unduly inappropriately from him. I will tell you a story that I think I've shared somewhere else, but uh, maybe not. Uh, when I wrote 50 to one, which was the 50th book we published, and it was sort of a commemoration of all of all our books. It was a story set 50 years earlier in told in 50 chapters with each chapter named after one of our books. <laughs> uh, so I took all the books in order. The first book was Grifter's Game. So chapter one was called Grifter's Game. Second book was Fade to Blonde. Chapter two was called Fade to Blonde. And so I had to make up a story that made logical sense of the 50, uh, 50 book titles in order, which of course was impossible because it didn't make any sense. But I, <laughs> I came up with a plot. At one point, I, I said, speaking of uh, other people's words, I went to Max Phillips, who hadn't written a book himself for years. And I said, I want you to write one chapter of this book. You're the co-founder of the line. I want you to write a chapter of this book. And uh, he wrote a chapter. I, I gave him all the chapters before that. I told him where it had to end. So, you know, he knew where that chapter had to get to. And he wrote a chapter. And I just thought it was a fun, a fun little thing to do. So even though the book bears my name and doesn't bear his, it's, um, it's 150th written by Max Phillips. And uh, yeah, that, that's... That, <laughs> People have asked me which chapter it is. It's sort of obvious. We published a book uh, probably around 2009, something like that, 2007, called The Max. So, of course, he had to write the chapter <laughs> called The Max. So, Brian, technically, I wrote part of Slattery Falls' debut. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> I like the sound of that. You're, you're acknowledged. Charles, have you heard of this book? Uh, what am I looking at? I see a slash. I see I've got terrible eyes. I see red on the top, white on the bottom. What am the I? Cre the Kremlin letter, but no, no, I haven't seen it. A novel of espionage. What is it? Oh, he he looks like a he looks like a spy. Yeah. So uh, it's a old. It's got deckled pages too. This is great. Wow, look at that. Yeah, I got a few few bucks. Uh, I just if there's a shitload of books at any of those like not thrift stores, but something of that nature. It's from '66. Yeah. It's an espionage in the uh, 
Cold War. I haven't read it yet, but it caught my eye, so I had to buy it. I love the cover. I love the uh, the, the graphic design on the cover. We don't yeah. generally do espionage. You know, Max um, wrote two espionage novels, very much in the style of James Bond novels, set in the period, uh, Cold War spy novels, uh, under a fake name. His fake name was Forrest DeVoe Jr., and they were published by uh, HarperCollins, I think. Uh, and they, I thought they were great. The first one was Into the Volcano, and the second was Eye of the Archangel. And uh, we thought about reprinting one of those, uh, maybe both of them. And the thing is, spy fiction and crime fiction aren't, aren't the same thing. They're sort of kissing cousins, but they're not quite the same. And so it feels wrong. When, when I've considered doing spy stories in hard case crime, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right, even though I love some. Like Spy Who Came In From The Cold is a brilliant novel. Uh, I'd have been proud to publish it, but it doesn't feel like hard case crime. Uh, so I do, I read spy fiction, but I don't, uh, we, we don't buy it. Although I guess you could say five Decembers has a spy element to it, but it, it's, it's barely, uh, barely there. Uh, there are other genres we don't do. We don't do serial killers. It, this isn't a moral thing. It's not some kind of opposition. I like Silence of the Lambs as much as anyone, uh, but <laughs> it doesn't feel right. If it doesn't feel right for hard case crime, because it, serial killer stories are very much of the seventies, eighties, nineties. They're not forties, fifties. They're the wrong period. It, if you read a serial killer story, it, it makes you think of Thomas Harris. It makes you think of CSI. And they're also, um, they're kind of all the same. Everyone's just doing Thomas uh, Harris. And uh, that's a lot of, that's a lot of sex. It, well, it, it, <laughs> it, it, I'm not, I'm not saying these books aren't good. I'm Brennan's just, shaking his head at me. What? Uh, I was just uh, commenting for the audio, for the oh, audio. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the um, the other one is uh, Dan Brown. When Dan Brown was uh, became hugely successful for the Da Vinci Code, we would get all these Dan Brown pitches, which would be, you know, a mysterious artifact, a chase through the streets of some European city, puzzles and clues. And I, I actually love Dan Brown's books. I really do. Uh, I, I, he's also a very nice guy, but we've never published that kind of book. It, it just doesn't feel like us. It, yeah. uh, I guess the closest we came to that was when Michael Crichton uh, just shortly before he died, my, Michael Crichton had written a number of uh, old pop lovers when he was in medical school as a, mm -hmm. a youngster. And one of those had a kind of uh, treasure hunt through Spain aspect to it. So we did that. But that's Michael Crichton. You know, you'll you'll break your own rules for some. Uh, <laughs> like if Thomas Harris wanted to write a book about Hannibal Lecter for us, I'd take it. It's not like I wouldn't take it. That would be a uh, dumb move not to man. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, 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 yeah, Thomas Harris writes anything. I'd be I'd be delighted. But the, that man writes a book every 10 years. So it's not. Uh, it's hard if you're if you're a one every ten years writer. It's hard to give your one book to a small house like ours. You know, Stephen King at least is prolific enough that giving one of his books to us doesn't mean that he doesn't have plenty of other books to give to his mm -hmm. usual publisher. Speaking of Hannibal Lecter, I really would love it if Thomas Harris eventually writes a book about Hannibal when he was actually killing everyone ah. that he was killing. So filling in the gap, right? Because he did the young Hannibal book, Hannibal I didn't, Rising. I did. That's the only one I didn't like. Yeah, it, it wasn't that great. But uh, and then of course he did the late ones. But yeah, filling in the gap, maybe at some point he'll do it. It's not impossible. The man needs a payday as much as anyone. <laughs> what have you got there? I want to jump ahead to uh, David Scow. David yeah, J. David Scow. Scow. Yeah, he is. Uh, he's he's touched pretty much everything there is to touch in uh, yeah. the horror world and in crime. To yeah. uh, the crow being, I didn't before I even knew who the writers were. I was a huge fan of that movie. Gunwork, um, Gunwork by David J. Scow. That cover has an Easter egg in it, or not exactly an Easter egg, but there's something about that cover that you will only notice once you've read the book. 
You will not notice it until you've read the book. But when you've read, read the book, you'll look closer at that art and you'll see that the artist did something very clever um, and not easy to do. Have you read it yet? I haven't. It's for it's going to be for my preparation. He's going to be women announced, but whatever. Um, <laughs> he's going to be our, our season three finale guest. But uh, oh, that's great. So so David Scout, he, he is a great guy and a great fan of crime fiction, fan of Donald Westlake. Uh, fan of hard case crime. I did two books with him. Gunwork is one, which is the one hard case crime book. We also did a series of adventure novels, sort of in the Indiana Jones vein, called The Adventures of Gabriel Hunt. And uh, we did one of those books together called Hunt Among the Killers of Men. And uh, all, all the Hunt books had uh, the word hunt in the, there you are, Hunt Among the Killers of Men. Not too many <laughs> people have that book. And so I love working with him. We've talked from time to time about doing another book together. Uh, I think that'd be great. He's he's such a gifted writer. You know, yeah, just man. sentence by sentence, his sentences are delicious. And I I don't know why more people don't uh, don't read his books. I I I think he should be a bestseller up there with anyone. Uh, yeah. So he sells his books on yeah. um, on his Facebook. That's how I got him. I bought him from him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he he and he's been uh, sort of self publishing. I think he created a new imprint, a new uh, book line to self publish his own books, and now he's branched out into publishing other people's as well. Uh, one of his great talents is as a writer of short stories. Uh, he's written far more short stories than novels. Of course, it's, you know, that, that, that's not a surprise. Like most people have written more short stories than novels, but uh, his short stories are particularly good. So if you get a collection of his short stories, you're going to be in for a treat. See in red. I know that's his in like, red uh, fallen angels. I think now maybe I'm getting the lost angels. I think it's the lost angels. Ooh, uh, lost in angels any event, I'm going to get the titles wrong, but there are a bunch of uh, really good short story collections. Uh, we, he, he was kind enough to send me a few of the more recent editions and I have them on my shelf and I don't don't stories out to myself one at a time. And, uh, they're, they're delicious. They're like uh, little savage bonbons. <laughs> that's a, that's a tasty analogy there. Um, Brennan, I think I cut you off like halfway through your series of questions. If I was going somewhere, I've <laughs> that train has left the station. That's <laughs> uh, okay. Well, so if you're if your fans are horror fans, uh, a couple of other sort of tips of the hat for horror fans. Uh, Daniel Krauss, who you you uh, mentioned earlier, yeah, Blood uh, Sugar. Blood Sugar is is a scary book. He's a very good writer and uh, wrote in a style that nobody else has would have attempted. It's bold, brave, weird. Uh, he wrote the entire book in a kind of weird argo, a weird slang. It's told by a street kid in, in street slang. And the kid is told you shouldn't be swearing so much. So he makes up fake swear words and he replaces actual uh, curses with fake curses. And you have to get used to that. It's weird, but it's wonderful. It's hilarious. It's weird. It's gross. And it's one of my favorite books. And a lot of people didn't get it. A lot of people picked it up and they said, what the hell is this? And I, I just think it's great. I, I loved I, it, man. I thought it was like, uh, I saw the relationship that's, or the, the analogy of someone saying, this is like a clockwork orange. And I agree. Yeah. yeah. Cause it's told in a weird language and you have to get into the head of these, these people who are going through some weird experiences. Uh, but it's actually a very sweet book and tender and, and, and heartbreaking. And the villain is really gross, which is always fun. Uh, so, so, and then, um, so I, I think the uh, only other writer that's sometimes classed as a writer of horror, uh, and maybe I'm forgetting someone is Ray Bradbury and mm. for his hundredth birthday. So Ray sadly died. He lived a very long life. He was in his nineties, I think when he died, but 
he uh, he died before his hundredth birthday, but we want to commemorate his hundredth birthday. So we did a collection uh, for the first time ever of his crime fiction. Uh, there was one collection as a paperback that was done while he was alive that he never liked very much. And he refused to allow it to be reprinted uh, because I think out of 20 or so stories in that collection, six were really, really good, but six out of 20 is not that great a number. So I said, okay, <laughs> let's do this right. Let's do the right collection of his crime fiction. We'll take the six good ones from that book and then we'll get 14 other really good ones. And we did a book called Killer Come Back to Me, which is- uh, I love that cover so much. Oh yeah, that's Paul Mann. So that's one of my favorite covers right there. Uh, Killer Come Back to Me is uh, the best crime fiction by Ray Bradbury. And needless to say, when it's Ray Bradbury, you have elements of horror and science fiction, supernatural come come into it. And so there's there's scary stuff in there, too. So if you're a horror fan, those are some of the ones that uh, that you might you might go for. Robert Block, you got him, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, right. Robert Block, father of Psycho. Um, Block did a couple of paperback originals and we did two of them back to back in the sort of old, what, what we call the ACE doubles style. So there was a publisher called ACE. I think there still is. I think there's an imprint called ACE somewhere, maybe part of Berkeley. Anyway, ACE did doubles, which were these books that were done toe to tail. So you read one book first. And when you got halfway through the volume, you turned the book upside down and read the other book, the other direction. So the book had two front covers, no back cover. And we did two block, short block novels that way. I think each one was about 50,000 words. And uh, one was called Shooting Star. One was called Spiderweb. They're fun. Uh, so yeah, Block was, I, I did get to work once very briefly with Block toward the end of his life. He did an introduction for a collection of uh, mystery stories that I edited. And uh, by reputation, he was just a sweetheart. And uh, I only, I dealt with him through other people. So I, I never got to meet him, sadly. But uh, everyone who knew him, Loved him. And uh, Scow is one of the people who, who knew him well. And I, I think you, you should talk to him about, about Block. That's a good, I didn't, I, <laughs> I didn't know that he knew. I'm Block, pretty sure. I, I'm sense. 99% sure. I, I have it in my head that he knew Block well. If I'm wrong, he probably I probably did. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And then there are some old timers like Cornell Woolrich uh, or Woolrich. I don't actually know which, which pronunciation is correct. He wrote the book, the story that became the Hitchcock movie Rear Window. His novels are suspense that are just bone cracking suspense. I mean, there rarely is a supernatural element once in a while, uh, but they're scary books. They're really suspenseful, really tense books. And we did a book of his called Fright, which as you can tell from the title is not, uh, not the happiest novel. And uh, <laughs> so he, he's, he's kind of a horror writer after a fashion. And that one's out of print at this point, but uh, you can probably find a used copy on eBay or uh, ABE books. And you got Joyce Carol Oates, too, who's a yeah, jack of all so, trades. You're absolutely right. So Joyce Carol Oates wrote a book uh, 50 years ago that was basically about the Manson murders. Uh, so basically the same premise uh, or the same uh, milieu as the Tarantino movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And she published it shortly after the Manson murders. And it's about a maniac. He's called the maniac. Uh, who's who's demented. He's, he's completely insane. And she writes it from his point of view. And so she's writing it in this fractured, insane style that's very hard to read, but beautiful. And so you're deep inside the brain of this, this delusional psychotic and uh, he's having hallucinations. You don't know what, whether what he says is real or not real. And he commits brutal, brutal murders. Uh, and you get a certain sense of why he is the way he is, but you don't ever have sympathy for him. Uh, but yeah, it's a hell of a book. I mean, it's a real virtuoso tour de force book, hard to read. And uh, I, I highly recommend it. Uh, but I, it's like, like Blood Sugar. It's one of those books that uh, 
a lot of people don't want to put the work into reading, but if you do, it's very rewarding. It look, uh, the cover looks pretty neat too. Yep, that's another McGinnis cover. I wanted to ask you because the first few books I read uh, in your line were first person, and okay. I was wondering, is there a particular um, magnetism you have for that that narration style? I like first person. My first novel, first two novels were written in the first person. I think it's immediate. It gets you right into the action. Uh, there's no filter or barrier between you and the main character. So if a man's on the run, you're on the run with him. Mm. Uh, if a man's taking a punch, you get socked in the jaw. <laughs> it feels very much like you're you know, seeing the world through that person's eyes. So I, it can be done well or badly, but when it's done well, it's very immersive. It throws you right into the world of the book, uh, which isn't to say third person can't do that too. It can, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a technique that fits our line very well. Uh, I have never done the analysis to see what percentage of our books are first person versus third person. For all I know, more of them are third person, but uh, Lawrence Block does it very well. Uh, there are a number of first person books in the line. And, uh, you know, there's someone like Woolrich will have a purple writing style. It's like Edgar Allan Poe. It's very ornate uh, poetic. It, it uh, has long sentences. Other people like Day Keen, my, my model, when I get a submission and the submission is overwritten and too purple, my model is Day Keen. And I write to people and I say, okay, this is what the first sentence of a hard case crime novel should be like. Day Keen, novel called Home is the Sailor. By the way, a fantastic book, Home is the Sailor. Uh, the first sentence is, it was night. That's it. That's the sentence. Don't elaborate. Three words. That's it. And then the second sentence, I think, is it was hot. <laughs> and, you know, you're 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 in uh, the terse uh, world of tough guys when you have two three word sentences. And that's how you're that's your entree into the book. That's not yeah. first person versus third, but it's part of the same spirit. For mm. sure. Um, yeah. Let's see for David. Jay Scouse. Oh, yeah. What is his first sentence? There you go. That's Actually, a good one. This will be new for me, too. I don't uh, even remember. <laughs> that's a lot longer. Okay. It's, it's an entire <laughs> it's paragraph. More than three words. Nope. That's a whole paragraph. <laughs> okay. Okay. Forget what I said. Never mind. Look, look you don't have to do it, but I, I, I was trying I, to prove your point, David. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. All right. You're going to embarrass me. No, I, I think uh, Keen was, was an exceptional avatar of the terse school. There are people who write longer sentences, but I'll tell you this, the longer your sentence, the better you have to be at it. <laughs> so, That's a, wow. Like, yeah. If, if you're, if you're constructing your, your book out of short sentences, uh, you still have to be a good writer, but you, um, you don't have to have quite the same sense of rhythm within a sentence because you know, you only have so many words. <laughs> um, I, I'll, I'll say this, for instance, Woolrich was a poet. Uh, I don't think he ever wrote poetry formally, but his, his, prose was poetic and he always used just the right word just the right phrase and it 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 just knocks you for a loop every time you read Woolrich uh Raymond Chandler was like that where you read a page of Chandler and if you don't stop to reread three sentences on the page it's it's a surprise because his sentences were just so delicious he would say things in ways that felt like no one had ever said them that way before and they were so clever so smart so funny so interesting if you're not Chandler and you're not Woolrich, don't write that way. Because second-rate Chandler is far worse than second-rate Day Keen. Like, second-rate Day Keen is okay. It's not great, but it's okay. 
if instead of writing it was hot, you write it was cold, that's still a fine sentence. But if you do second rate Cornell Woolrich, you seem like an idiot. You know, you, you, you're you're just doing weird, you know, semi poetic things that aren't good. And bad Chandler is the worst thing on earth. You know, people who do these bad private eye stories where they say his battleship, you know, his, no, sorry, his battleship, his desk was no larger than a battleship. And it's like, I've read that line, literally that same line in like 20 submissions. His desk was no larger than a battleship. It's like, come up with something original, come up with something that no one's ever said before. Uh, bad uh, Chandler reads like pastiche, reads like parody. And uh, you have to be very careful when you're writing in our genre, which is an old genre. Mm -hmm. It's like if you're writing a Western, you have to be very careful that you're not blazing saddles. Right. <laughs> blazing saddles is great. But if you're not yeah. trying to be comedy, you, you have to be careful. And if you're doing a hardwell detective with a fedora and a hat and a bottle of whiskey in the drawer, it's so easy to slip into Bob Hoskins and who framed Roger Rabbit. Right. Uh, so if you want to be taken seriously, you've got to be careful. You got to yeah, be careful. You know who I always would, think of uh, the the library cop from Seinfeld when I think of yeah, yeah. Noir. <laughs> it, that, that kind <laughs> of exactly. Bookman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, <it'd> be, <laughs> I love Seinfeld. You know, it'd be perfect uh, to work with you guys about. You know, yeah. we're talking about rereading. Would be Joe Lansdale. I love him. Oh work. yeah, 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 Lansdale. So we've talked to him, and so Lansdale is is uh, is phenomenal and a nice guy, and we've just never we've never hit. Uh, hit the right book because in, in most of it. So he, he sent me a couple of the uh, books that he did early in his career that might be good candidates to be reprinted. And they tip just a little too far towards horror. Mm. Uh, he, some of his more recent books are very much in the noir hard boiled crime vein. Sure. Uh, but I don't, I don't know that we pay enough for a guy like Joe Lansdale. I think we, uh, we may not have enough money to get Joe Lansdale, but uh, he is terrific. He's, he's an absolutely wonderful writer. Uh, there are a number of those, like uh, Dan Simmons. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, he did three books in a series that would be a perfect series for us. And he thought about doing a fourth book, never did it. I'd love to get that fourth book. That would be great. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, of some of the other authors we've approached. Uh, you know, there, there are people who won't let you reprint their early stuff. Like uh, there's a guy named Alan First who writes World War II, very serious, well-respected World War II spy novels. When he started his career, he wrote a book that was hilarious and really good about a pot dealer smuggling. It had nothing. It was nothing like what he writes today. And I've gone to him three times and said, hey, come on, that book's great. And it is. It's a great book. Uh, it was nominated for the Edgar Award. It was terrific. Best first novel. Oh, my God. I, he won't let us reprint it. He won't let anyone reprint it because I think his current fans, He's. He's. I think he's concerned that his current fans who know him for something much more sober and much more serious and much more proper, you know, what would they think if we, you know, under his name, it was this, this goofy uh, caper about a pot dealer. So. That's such, that's such a weird, you know, mindset to me, because it's like, do you like what you're, Brennan's one of my best friends, yeah. you know, <clears throat> um, do I just like him when he's being funny and he has this, there you go. I love everything about him, even when he's being a dick. <laughs> well, that's, I, I, I don't mind if the author says, uh, you know, if an author says, look, I wrote that book early in my career and I think it sucks. I think it's a bad book. That's why I won't let you reprint it because it's a bad book that I respect. That sure. That's total fine. And in fact, if they're right, then I don't want to reprint it. <laughs> yeah. um, but when it's when it's a good book, you know, and it's uh, like objectively a good book because it was nominated for an award and it yes, deserved it for that know, award. And the author doesn't say it was a bad book. It's just, it's just not what people want from me now. 
then I feel a little worse about it. But I mean, I still respect it, of course, but I, I feel a little worse because we're denying readers a real pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sue Grafton, who wrote The Alphabet Mysteries, A is for Alibi, B is for mm-hmm. Burglar, died sadly after doing Y is for Yesterday, I think. Uh, she never got to Z, but she was so close. Um, mm-hmm. Before she started that series, she wrote a book uh, that was very different in style about moonshine uh, gun runners in the deep South. And I wanted to get that reprinted. And she said no, because for the same reason, which was all her fans who picked up A is for Alibi all the way through Y, uh, they would expect it to be Kinsey Milhone. They'd expect it to be like the Alphabet Mysteries. And it's just so different. And she just didn't want to give them the shock of uh, picking up one of her books, expecting one kind of book and getting another and being disappointed. So, I, you know, again, I respect that. I totally yeah. get that. But, you know, like in movies, I love it when a comedian just comes out of the blue. Like with Adam Sandler, I saw Uncut yeah. Gems in theaters. I was blown away and it was amazing. And uh, Barry Lewis in uh, King of Comedy. If you haven't seen it, go see the King of Comedy. It's great, uh, especially if you saw and like Joker, because Joker is really riffing on stuff that Martin Scorsese did in the King of Comedy 30 years earlier. Uh, and Jerry Lewis plays a serious part in that movie or the TV series Wise Guy, where he played a serious part. Uh, yeah, there are a number of comedians that have, have done that sort of Robin Williams, of course, famously did a number of serious movies that he was great in. Uh, Jason Bateman, uh, how he came uh, out with Ozark. I mean, I love Jason Bateman, but, you know, I, I, I can't help thinking of his sister, Justine Bateman. Every time I every time I see him, I see I see Justine Bateman because <laughs> I had a big crush on her when I was watching Family Ties as a kid. Yeah, <laughs> that dates uh, me. That shows how old I am. Brennan, go <laughs> ahead, buddy. With what? <laughs> I felt like you were asking. Oh no, I'm sorry. I thought you wanted me to lead us so, like somewhere in particular. No, nah, um, we can go to what are you reading if you'd like. Sure. Yeah, let's do that. All right, Charles, what are you currently reading? All right, that's an interesting question. <laughs> so, here's why it's an interesting question. I'm always reading things as candidates to uh, to reprint. Sure. And I don't want to give away secrets because I don't want one of my competitors to say, oh, ah, there's ah. a good idea. I'm going to tell you, though, what I am reading. So uh, there are <laughs> two novels that are lost novels by Graham Greene. Now, Graham Greene was a huge, huge major author, uh, became famous for any number of very serious books like The Power and the Glory and uh, The Human Factor and... Uh, Orient Express, which had a different title originally, This Gun for Hire. Anyway, Graham Greene wrote probably 30 books, and his second and third book he refused to allow ever to be reprinted. He decided he didn't like them, and he didn't want them to be reprinted. And so they've only appeared once in a single edition each in 1931 and 1933 and never since. So these books are almost a century old. And this famous author who was brilliant, great author, um, these books have not been read by anyone in 90 years. So I thought that's, I've got to, I've got to read these books. So I tracked down copies from rare book dealers. I ordered them, paid too much money for them. (laughs) And, uh, and I've been reading them. So I read the first, I'm halfway through the second. The problem is they're actually bad. They're actually bad. Great writer sentence by sentence. Some of the sentences are beautiful. Uh, I remember one description, a guy goes to a German town uh, between the wars, between World War I and World War II. Since it was written in 31, you know, he didn't know it was between the wars. <laughs> I mean, it was, there was no World War II yet when he wrote it, but we know it's between the wars. 
and uh, a clock chimes. And I think he described it as uh, somewhere a clock. Uh, oh, I'm going to get the verb wrong. I want to say relinquished its load of hours. I thought that's a lovely <laughs> phrase. The clock relinquished its load of hours. Never heard but, of that before. Yeah, no, nor, nor will you ever again. So uh, <laughs> the book's not good. The book's not good. And I wish it were because I would love to uh, go to the green estate and try to persuade them to let us publish it. But I kind of can see why he, why he shut it down. Um, <laughs> that sucks. Yeah, it's a shame, <laughs> but I mean, I'm reading good things too, but that that's, you know, I'll show you one of the things. Hang on. Oh, there's this author who, uh, who sent us uh, a submission guy's name is Bede Scott, B E D E Scott. And the book's called too far from Antibes. Um, uh, this is a book that felt a little bit too much like a spy story, a little bit too much like international intrigue, not quite a hard case crimes thing. And, uh, but really good, really well written. In fact, written sort of in the style of Graham Greene. It's, he's a really good writer and he ended up selling it. It was hardly a step down. It was sold to Penguin Books. And uh, he sent me a copy of the finished book and I started reading it again. So I read maybe the first half of it when it was a, a submission. And as soon as I realized it wasn't for us, I, I, I didn't read the rest. Um, but I've started to read it now and it's great. It's really, really good. So I recommend Too Far From Antibes by Bede Scott, if you can get a copy. And uh, I think it was published uh, by their international imprint. I forget. Um, I, I assume you can find it on Amazon. You can find anything on Amazon. So that's better. <laughs> so I'm reading Graham Greene, Graham Greene, and a book inspired by Graham Greene. And the best of the three is the book inspired by Graham Greene. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, before we, uh, before we, uh, Patrick and I weigh in, uh, let's, let's take this time to promote any upcoming releases that hard case has. Sure. Oh, I appreciate that. Thanks. So, so our, um, our next book coming for in the summer, I have finished copies from the printer already. It's not in stores yet until, uh, June, I think early June, but name it sometime in June is a book called the next time I die by Jason Starr. By the way, this is one of our rare cases that does tip over the edge into horror and specifically science fiction. It's sort of a Philip K. Dick, Twilight Zone style story. Mm. Uh, there's a man in a crumbling marriage. His wife wants a divorce. She's cheating on him. Uh, he's uh, about to go to trial. He's a lawyer. He's about to go to trial, try to defend a serial killer. He knows the guy's actually a killer, but he's got to defend him. Anyway, he's having a bad night. His wife just asked for a divorce. He's driving to a gas station on a snowy night and he sees a woman getting beaten up by this thuggish guy. And he steps in to defend her and gets a knife to his chest and he's killed. And then he wakes up in the hospital and he's got no wound on his abdomen. And the doctors are saying, your head injury is better. Head injury? What head injury? His wife comes in. She loves him. She adores him. Here's your daughter. She's so worried about you. Daughter? I didn't have a daughter. He wanted a daughter. He wanted a child. He was childless. He looks in his bank account. He's got more money than he's ever had before. There's a different president in the White House. 9-11 never happened. Everything about this world seems better than the world he came from. He's in an alternate universe. The only problem is the more he learns about who he is in this universe, he doesn't seem like a very nice guy. And for some reason, the police are after him. But he has no idea why, because he doesn't know who he is in this universe. So when the police come and ask him a question like, where were you last Wednesday night? 
He has no idea where he was last <laughs> Wednesday night. How do you even answer that question? But you can't answer it. I was in another universe, officer, right? It's just, it's a wonderful book. It's called The Next Time I Die by Jason Starr. Uh, it does have a serial killer element to it. It, it has a lot of, of really scary stuff in it and an ending that will, uh, that, that'll throw you for a loop. Uh, it's coming out in, in June. After that, we have a reissue of a very old and forgotten book that was never published under its author's real name called The Hot Beat, which was written by Robert Silverberg, a grandmaster of the science fiction writers of America, not known for crime fiction, but he did write some crime fiction early on. He wrote this under a fake name. The fake name was Stan Vincent, and nobody ever read it, uh, called The Hot Beat. Great old lurid pulp story. That's coming in September, I think. And then at the end of the year, we've got a big hardcover which is really good, uh, by Max Allen Collins, who was the author of the uh, graphic novel Road to Perdition that became the movie uh, with mm. Tom Hanks and uh, Jude Law and Paul Newman. And uh, also he created a series of books about a hitman named Quarry, which became a Cinemax TV series. Really good writer. Uh, he has a signature detective named Nathan Heller who always solves real crimes, as in uh, the author will find an actual historical crime, a true crime, He'll do all the research into the true crime that he would need to do to write the definitive true crime book about it. And instead, he writes a private eye novel in which <laughs> his private eye solves this actual historical crime. And he always proposes a solution and he's really good at it. So you come away reading the book thinking, I bet he's right. I bet that's what really happened. And, you know, sometimes he probably is. Anyway, the book's called The Big Bundle, and it's about a kidnapping that really happened in 1953. And uh, it, it was, you know, some kid got kidnapped and it was the biggest ransom in the history of the United States up to that point. And half the ransom money was never recovered. And Jimmy Hoffa was involved. Robert Kennedy was involved in weird ways. And uh, it's, it's terrific. It's called The Big Bundle. It's going to be a hardcover in December, just in time for Christmas. And uh, I highly recommend that, but you have to wait six months for that one. You only have to wait six weeks or not even six weeks uh, for Jason stars. The next time I die. And if you're, if you're re your readers, listen to me, I'm so old fashioned. If your listeners, if your viewers are horror fans, they will definitely like the next time I die. Very Jason cool. Star. Yeah. Those sound fascinating. Yeah. Those are, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, I, I Patrick, will get you copies. Sure. I um, will grudgingly accept. There you go. <laughs> What are you reading? I just finished Five December's. Okay. So the next book that I was going to dive into was Jonathan Mayberry's. Uh, man, I'm going to mess up the first. How do you pronounce it, Brennan? I don't know. I, I say <laughs> Kagan, but it's a book. So I've never heard of that loud. <laughs> Kagan uh, the Damned. That's kind of Or Kagan the Damned, depending um, on how you pronounce it. Yeah, it's, a, it's an epic fantasy and uh, I haven't, I'm starting it tomorrow, so I, I can't really speak as to what it's about, but I'm, <laughs> I'm reading that. And uh, yeah. And the other one that I'm uh, reading is called Anybody Home. I don't have that with me down here. Uh, it is uh, transgressive, I guess, would be the okay. genre. Uh, basically, it goes through breaking into homes as a show. And okay. It, it gets brutal though, and it goes, it breaks down home invasions, but in a kind of a new way, at least that I've read it as. And huh. I'll it's out. just interesting. It's like the older generation telling the, the newer guys, like, this is what to do. This is the kind of blueprints of it. It's, it's real, it's real neat. Uh, Brady, right. what about you, man? 
Uh, I'm also reading Jonathan Mayberry's fantasy, Cadge in the Damned, in case you were wondering who we're talking to next week. Um, uh-huh. And it's it's really cool. I'm about 30 or 40% into it. And it, it, is a, it is a whopper of a book. So 30 or 40% is a lot of work. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know... Jonathan is, you know, a big part of the HWA, you know, he kind of writes all over the place, but he's primarily known as a horror guy. So you see the Lovecraft elements kind of make their way into uh, more like sword and sorcery fantasy. And it's a really cool mashup. Um, I'm I'm having fun with it. And I also am reading, we were talking about Don Winslow earlier. I'm reading The Power of the Dog. Uh, I got this in the mail yesterday. I'm a hundred pages in cause I can't put it down. Um, it's, it's really cool. It's one of those books where you read a chapter and you're introduced to certain characters in a certain setting. Um, and then the next, ca- the next chapter is just the, there's no relation. It's its own kind of self-contained, very intriguing story. And then, you know, by the time you hit around that hundred page mark, you're starting to see these very like all together. Yeah. You're starting to see the threads touch um, and you're imagining where it's going from there. But uh, he has a, he has a way of writing that just won't let you put the book down that I'm really, really digging. (laughs) Uh, Where can people follow you, Charles? Or parkcaseprime.com is our website, and you can find sample chapters from every one of our books there. You uh, can see all our covers, all free. Uh, You can't order our books directly from us, but you can get them through any bookseller. We have an Instagram, and we have a Twitter, and if you search on Insta or Twitter, you'll find us. Uh, I forget exactly how many underscores you need to get our name, so I'm not even going to (laughs) try. Hard underscore case, whatever it is. But in any event, if you search for hard case crime, you'll find us and we'll post you know, our new covers. We'll, we'll post those online when, as they come up. And sometimes if I get really grouchy about a particularly uh, bad submission, I'll, I'll post that online, too. And that's fun. But I mean, probably not fun for the person who submitted it, but I never give names. So I, I, I feel a little bad when I do it. But sometimes a, a submission is just so funny. I've got to do it. Um, so you can find us on social media and you can find us in bookstores. You can find us on the Web. And uh, also on this outstanding podcast. That's where you find me. Thanks, man. Um, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, sure, sure. Listen, I, I, I feel like I, um, I, I owe you some thanks. Hard Case Crime is not squarely in your uh, uh, bullseye. I mean, we're close. We're not too far off. But letting us uh, talk to your fans and your, your listeners and your viewers is great. Uh, I would love for Hard Case Crime to uh, to reach more people. That would be great. We're a little tiny labor of love boutique operation. We have a staff of zero. It's uh, me and Max <laughs> and our friends at Titan helping us out. And uh, once in a while, we have a book that breaks out in a really big way. Uh, Five Decembers broke out in its way. Of course, Stephen King is a whole other category. Uh, but our typical book will, you know, it 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 needs love. It needs attention. And so if you read one of our books and you love it, tell your friends, tell people that this is a good book that they're going to enjoy. It means the world. And uh, since we can't afford to uh, do the kind of marketing you do on billboards in Times Square, word of mouth is uh, is how our books find their, their proper homes. Uh, it means a lot to me that you came on because I love your line. Um, I, I'm thrilled anytime. Happy to, happy to come back. Well, we'll take you up on that offer. And we are, we, we love talking to people in the crime noir and uh, like Sean, Sean Cosby came on a few times. Um, we'll have Eli 
come on eventually. I already talked to him about that. Would love to have James on too. But yeah, crime is a fun, uh, really fun genre. It's, it is. It is. I and it, it overlaps. You know, when I try to shelve books, it's like Silence of the Lambs. Where does that go? Is it horror <laughs> or crime? Right. So you've yes. got you've got supernatural. <laughs> right. Exactly. There's supernatural horror. Does that go in fantasy? And you have non-supernatural horror. Does that go in crime? And similarly, crime sometimes overlaps. Like Isaac Asimov's book, The Naked Sun. That's a detective story. It has robots in it. Where do you shelve it? It's, uh, you know, everything Everything interpenetrates. That's the nature of the world. But I, I do love crime. It's just my my first love. I'm, I'm also a science fiction fan. I'm also a fantasy fan. Of course, horror. Uh, but crime, somehow I've I've found my home here. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's a dirty, mean street, but it's home. That's awesome. Brennan, final thoughts. It's a great way to put it. A dirty mean street, but it's home. Uh, no, Charles, we appreciate your time so much, man. And we, we love what you're doing. We wouldn't have you on if we didn't love what you were doing. The whole package, the idea of just kind of recreating and in some ways, literally recreating uh, the that that 40s and 50s era of pulp paperbacks that come in a nice little condensed package with this beautiful throwback cover. Um, and like I said earlier, they're just they're they're lean and mean. They're they're great reads. Um, and you've been you've been doing this for a while. And uh, we, we, we longer than I you... ever thought I would. Thank, thank you, guys. That, that means the world. And uh, just keep on reading them. And I'm, I'm, I'll keep churning them out. My final Dude, thoughts. My final thoughts are, again, thank you for your time, Charles. Brian, thank you for uh, being my co-pilot, sir. And listeners and viewers, thank you for sticking around. And please do check out those books, review them, and uh, reach out to the authors if you like them. If you don't, keep that to yourself. Uh, <laughs> next episode, 149. You know, you got to say that, though, sometimes because you hear from plenty of authors how people are just – it's just this weird industry where they think because they bear their soul into art that you have a right to be a dick to them and be like, yeah, <laughs> fuck this. I don't yeah. like it. It's, it's, it's a strange mindset. So – Next episode is 149 with Jonathan Mayberry. He's the man behind uh, running the show with why uh, he doesn't want me to say that, but with Weird Tales, we're going to be talking about his new book, amongst any, uh, many other things. And, and we're uh, going to learn how to say the title. That's it. You'll find out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, is, uh, this has been a pleasure. Charles R. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. It's plural. Have a wonderful night. And you too, everybody, you've had many choices in podcasts. Thank you for picking us.